Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, hey, what is going on, people? Uh, welcome to a brand new and special episode of A Day Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. As always, I'm your host, Kwame Salfamenta. And if this is your first time tuning into the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you return for future episodes after you love this one. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and of course, insightful. So um, today's episode is going to operate a little bit differently from our usual episodes. Uh, But before I explain further what that's going to look like, I just want to remind folks who are on YouTube to subscribe to the channel by clicking that red subscribe button. That's going to allow you to get future notifications on episodes that are coming on the channel. And if you're listening from Apple Podcasts or Spotify or or wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, make sure you subscribe there as well. We also accept any monetary donations that you want to contribute to the Identity Talk platform so that we can continue to bring in some phenomenal guests to talk about all things education. So if you're on Cash App, uh, the handle is money sign ID Talk for Ed. And if you're on Venmo, you can direct your donations to at Kwame SM. That's K W A M E S M. And of course, all episodes of this podcast can be found on our main website at identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you kindly. So, um, Today, like I said, is a special episode. Uh, For one, we're going live from Freetown. So I'm in Freetown, Sierra Leone, for those who don't know. And one thing that I was apprehensive about was the connectivity. Because when you're trying to do it from abroad, you just never know how the internet's going to respond. So we're taking a risk today, which is great. And I am confident that Today's conversation is going to be one that y'all will leave with just full and ready to act in your classrooms. So uh, the topic for tonight's discussion is focused on inclusive classrooms. What does it mean to create an inclusive classroom environment that's inviting to all students across the intersections? So when we talk about intersections, we're talking about not just race, we're talking about religion, we're talking about ability, we're talking about language, we're talking about culture, 
and all these other markers. And to help us uh, with this conversation, I've invited three of my favorite educators on to share their expertise, but also the work that they've done in their respective school environments to try to make their environments inclusive to all students um, in their space. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring on my friends to join us in this conversation. So I have here Destiny Clark, Francois Thineau, and Craig Martin, three phenomenal educators. And I'm going to give each of them just the opportunity to briefly share about themselves, what they do, and and why they're here. So um, first and foremost, I'll, I'll start with the ladies. So we're going to go uh, Destiny first, then Fran, and then Craig. Go ahead, Destiny. Okay, thank you. Uh, so my name's Destiny Clark. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I serve as an LGBTQ plus educational consultant. Um, I'm a former teacher. I taught high school and middle school English for seven years. And now I'm in the consulting space. And so I provide coaching and um, curriculum resources for teachers to bring in, like Kwame was talking about, those inclusive practices into their classrooms. Hi, my name is Francoise. Uh, my pronouns are she in English and ella in Espanol. I am a racialized immigrant from Chile. I'm still dealing with the immigration system here in the United States. I am... I, you could say that I'm a language expert. I My bachelor's degree is in ESL education, and then my master's degree is in early childhood and elementary. But I worked for the last 12 years as a Spanish teacher. I've also been in bilingual classrooms. So my job is basically where ABAR approaches and decolonization lens meets languages. Um, I uh, I do a lot of work outside being an educator uh, that is related to this intersection. I, I've done presentations. I've been nominated for uh, two awards in ACTFL. Uh, I'm currently doing a building up with the ACTFL amazing people, a seminar about creating brave affirming spaces for LGBTQ plus students in world language classrooms. So. That's basically me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and last but not least, Craig, what's going on, brother? Hey, what is going on, family? Uh, I'm Craig Martin. Um, I'm a school leader uh, here in uh, Boston, uh, KA Community Bridge Boston Charter School. We're right in Roxbury. Uh, this is uh, year 20. I'm going into year 21 in this business, in this work that we do, in this call. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm vintage at this juncture, uh, which is pretty exciting. Um, for me, the work is not, uh, is in uh, my call, the center of what I do and, and who I hope that I am uh, I am out in this world is to create bold and rich spaces for young people and their educators and caregivers to thrive. And, and so I've been um, a school leader now almost 10 years. I'm, I'm still a classroom teacher because I, I don't mind jumping into a classroom and I have no problem from kindergarten all the way through probably middle school, high schoolers like you know, I'm gonna leave that to the lead that to, to, to destiny. Uh, <laughs> to do that work, 
Uh, but for me, it is, uh, you know, it is always about driven by the question of how can we uh how can we provide all the resources and tools and supports so that our young people with all of the host of identities they have can thrive? So mm-hmm. let's have the conversation. I'm excited. So excited, y'all. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I like the way that you chose the word vintage to describe your experience. That's just <laughs> the right word to use. Yes. So um, for those who are watching us live, we do have the comment section, whether you're watching from YouTube or Facebook. So if you want to chime in while we're having the conversation, all is welcome with your input. So please don't be bashful. Share freely. And if something resonates with us, uh, you will definitely post it up for everybody to see. But I want to start us off from the beginning. So typically when I start the podcast, I usually ask all my uh, guests, to just share how they got into education. But I want to remix it a little bit. Since we're talking about being inclusive in our classroom, I want to focus on our own journeys Mm -hmm. because each of us, I'm assuming, had to deal with some challenges as far as trying to reconcile or embrace our identities, however we define them, Mm -hmm. and use our identities to navigate our respective school spaces. So I want to open up the conversation by asking each of you all to just share if you've experienced any of those struggles with your identity and just showing up as your authentic self. And and if so, how did those struggles impact the way that you navigated the different spaces you were in? So I'm going to let Francois go first and then I'll just work my way back up. Okay, so I have two different very marked experiences um, when it comes to interacting in schools. First, um, I'm Chilean, and I was born in a fascist dictatorship, kindly sponsored by the United States. So my, you could say my trauma comes from being a woman in a environment that is hostile to women in general. I was lucky enough to attend um, public school and it was an all-girls school. And I know my teachers, all women, also did their best to empower us somehow. But um, enduring that sort of uh, silent violence was something that marked me for life. And I think it made me more of a rebel and a radical because I had to see, I got to see first, first, uh, you know, in my own experience, in my own skin, what it was to be conditioned. For example, we were needing clothes for babies in fifth grade. That was the expectation of our role as women. And I think my nature, which is more intellectual and a little bit over the place, you know, didn't fit the what was ex- what was a woman or a girl expected to be. Um, fortunately I had a mother that always supported that side of me and needed all my projects that I needed to need <laughs> because I was really bad at it, but, uh, it, it was something that I still to this day remember. And the second experience that I can share with you, it's as an immigrant and coming as a teacher to United States, uh, I've been feeling out of place most of the time. 
because uh, United States uh, spaces are usually uh, on appearance welcome to immigrants, but mm. down deep inside, it's not really welcoming. And uh, I have found that the environments, and this is going to sound really strong, but bear with me, are a lot of the environments, the school environments are, um, are really uh, centered on white supremacy culture. And that is something that I've been, um, I've been brought up to go against it, uh, especially when my country stopped being a dictatorship. And I read for the first time, Pedagogy of, of, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. You know, so um, I'm usually the person that it's uh, loud about the things that are not equitable. And that gets me in trouble sometimes. <laughs> but I, these are two experiences that I would say that I have felt like fish out of the water, but I, that have made me um, struggle and at the same time thrive. Um, so I definitely had, um, some struggles in navigating a school space as well. Um, I'm a queer person in North Carolina, so it (laughs) is a little difficult to navigate that space. Um, and especially I, I really love, um, it's Francois. Francoise, yeah. Okay. So I I love what you said uh, about white supremacy culture, like functioning in schools, because that's really something that we need to address as Mm -hmm. a collective. um, And that we kind of see that in the anti-LGBTQ rhetoric as well. Um, That's, you know, an identity that is marginalized by that as well. Um, And I think that being here in North Carolina, it's, it just depends, you know, some schools are more inclusive than others. Um, and so some of those environments have been easier to navigate than others. But um, in general, it has been difficult to, to navigate as a queer person here. All right, Craig, what do you want to add to the conversation, brother? Uh, well, for me, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, you know, a little gumbo, a little jambalaya, you know, <laughs> in regards to our experiences. And so for uh, for me coming up in K-12 education, I, I you know, unapologetically, I'm, I'm dark chocolate. So you you just get all of this, you know, <laughs> from the moment you, you see. <laughs> Struggle's and real so- for us, brother. Struggle's real for us. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, um, growing up in New Orleans, Louisiana, um, six foot three, um, I was a little bit thicker than I am today. Thicker than, than more Snickers. Uh, and so... For me, there was multiple areas that I had to had to navigate. One, uh, being a dark chocolate brother, you know, um, I had to compete with the light skinned friends. So you know, all the Drakes of the world, the bars for those who were, got a little age and seasoning on them. That was one. So we talked about colorism, you know, in the spectrum of being primarily in environments of of, of uh, young people of color. I also recognize that bodies is also, you know, when we talk about identities, because I, you know, I heard Francois uh, say, talk about, uh, you know, citizenship uh, and Destiny talking about being, uh, you know, part of the queer community or LGBTQ uh, community as am I. And so I recognize that for me coming up, I wasn't safe to be black and male and gay. In, you know, in many spaces in my K-12 uh, experience, my teachers didn't know how to deal with it. They knew how to deal with me being smart or smart mouth. 
depending on which teacher you talk to. Uh, because I, too, want to push against, you know, why is this group think a thing? I grew up in a Catholic school. I'm like, why is it that I got to talk to the priest? That's a middleman. Like, I thought you told me I need to talk to up high. I don't understand what's going on here. So, like, I, too, was pushing up against things that, you know, I was like, I don't understand why, you know, I was going to say some things. I probably Like, that's a whole different podcast. But what I say... You know, I'm feeling comfortable. I'm feeling comfortable. Uh, thank you, Kwame, for making us feel comfortable. What I would say, uh, in closing out my, my, my thoughts here briefly, um, it is it definitely was a lot to navigate, and you had to have the right teachers to provide the kind of tools and resources to navigate the complexity. I'm mm -hmm. grateful I had people who were guardian angels and rights at the right time in the right spaces who were incredible teachers who saw something in me and found that it was they were going to do what they could do so that the light in me would not uh, extinguish. And so I'm really grateful for incredible teachers who saw something beyond my melanin, my height. You know, they saw something and wanted to help nurture it so that it actually would manifest to, you know, where I am today. Yes. And, and Craig, <laughs> that is, mm, yeah, we got to get some snap. Yeah, we got to snap. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's a perfect segue into my next question because when we're talking about creating that inclusive environment we always hear these terms creating a safe space creating a brave space right mm -hmm. and what i've noticed is that a lot of people use those two terms interchangeably to like mean the same thing when in all mm -hmm. actuality it doesn't and i think as we're doing this work it's important that we unpack what it means to be safe mm-hmm what does it really mean to be brave? Because right now we're in a safe space where we're able to speak freely about our experiences with our identities, but it's brave in a sense that we're sharing things that maybe when we were like 11, 12, 13, or in our teenage years, we didn't have the courage to share because of fear of, you know, ridicule or, or consequence. So I'm going to open up the floor for y'all. It doesn't matter who, who um, shares, but when we're talking about inclusive spaces, how do we distinguish between a brave space and a safe space? Because a lot of us may not even know what it is who are watching us today. So what is the distinction between those two? I can go first. <laughs> I just recorded a video for Actual about this. Um, so um According to what I've been learning about, and this is the reason we call the seminar Brave Spaces instead of Safe Spaces. So um, we might all have different ideas of what these terms means because, I mean, we are people with diversity of opinions and backgrounds. But in, in general, I would say that a, a, that a safe space, it's a little bit of the ideal that we would like to have, and it's very hard to reach because it would be a, a space where there are no microaggressions. I mean, hopefully not microaggressions, and, but neither microaggressions, you know, macro or micro, the big ones and the small ones. So um, 
like assuring, for example, our students that we are going to create a safe space, it will be sort of um, a little bit disingenuous in the sense of we have a community that brings their own biases, that it brings their own ba 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 backgrounds uh, to our space. And we cannot assure a kid that that kid is not going to suffer, for example, um, microaggression by another kid that doesn't unintentionally. But when we talk about brave spaces, it means first that marginalized people had to bring themselves um, bravely into that space because we know that we can be exposed to anything that can happen to us, any micro or micro aggressions, you know? But um, it also means that we come from a place of opening and learning and that people in that space are going to be held accountable by the community if they get, if they slip up. And all of us have the potential to make a mistake and say something wrong because we are in this journey that it's never ending and that is, you know, uh, long lasting. So that's what I like the idea of a brave space because it gives us uh, space for mistakes that we can uh, be held accountable for and that we can redress and grow. You know, uh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Everybody else want to chime in? Um, yeah, <clears throat> if I, I could add, I um. I have a really big problem with the idea of safe space because I think that safe means something different to everyone. Mm -hmm. And that, um, as you mentioned before, like that's kind of disingenuous to offer this space to our students that honestly doesn't really exist um, because we can't ensure that everyone is going to feel safe whether it's safe in their identity, safe in the building, um, you know, that we face such a big challenge in creating an affirming space for students. And I think that safe is a very misleading word to use. Um, and so when I work with educators, I encourage them to use principled spaces, kind of similar to brave spaces that the classroom is governed and, you know, the classroom is driven by principles. Mm -hmm. So like we share the same values that people are important and their identities are important and that, um, you know, your feelings are valid and like what you're experiencing in the classroom is an experience. And I think mm -hmm. that when you take that collective approach yes. um, and use your principles to really guide what you want your classroom to look like, that that's a much better outcome than, mm -hmm empty promises of a safe space. I agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I would love to add yeah. if that's, that's okay. Uh, and I too have, you know, been interrogating this question of what is a brave space? One, you as a, you as an educator have to create the conditions so that people feel emotionally safe or vulnerable enough mm -hmm. that they can yeah. bring parts of themselves to the space but you have to feel comfortable and solid and confident in all that you bring to the table or just an awareness of how you show up in the space mm -hmm. because then you are going to be i would say divinely connected or you're going to create an opportunity to ensure that you're connected enough to the the different souls who are in your space mm -hmm. yeah. and that you are not going to put them in harm's way by mm -hmm in an environment where when they share something deep where they share parts mm -hmm. of themselves that are that hurt them that may you know uh mm -hmm. 
caused harm, they've experienced trauma with, that you have created enough um, support <laughs> in the space. How do you have the conversations? What are the safe words or ways that you can say, you know what, I'm okay, well, you know, let's pass today. Or I don't feel like I have the ability to be, to show mm -hmm. up and you need me to, and that it, it's okay. And that mm -hmm. there's multiple ways for young people uh, and educators, if we're talking about it from a professional development perspective, mm -hmm. there's still multiple ways to access the conversation, have places where you can get support, um, and also know that there are tools mm -hmm. that you're constantly using all the time in those spaces mm -hmm. that people understand that they're held accountable to them. So mm -hmm. you are the guardian in that yes. space. You yes. hold everyone to the same norms. Mm -hmm. What is said in this space is nurtured. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you accept everything that's coming up, but you have the ability to just acknowledge that that is the way that that person is actually feeling or that's their thoughts and that's what they're carrying. Our job as as educators is to facilitate dialogue mm -hmm. so that we can yes. have human connection and a greater awareness to who we mm -hmm. are in the spaces we're in. If we can do that, yes. then I think people are more apt to be brave and step out into places they've never been, especially when they, they can say, you know what, I did create harm when I said this or did this to you, or said nothing, and I didn't know that I was harming you by saying yeah. nothing. You know, and when yeah. you can do those things, then I think that that's a brave space that's thriving mm -hmm. and the humanity rises. Uh, and and that's, that's the goal. That's the goal. You want the humanity to rise. Mm -hmm. mm. And totally. I feel like yeah, and I feel like when we use the word brave, not even brave, safe, usually when people hear the word safe, they tend to equate it with the preservation of white comfort. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes the word safe dangerous. That operative word safe is it's like this idea of, okay, so that means that I am above criticism. Mm -hmm. That means that if I make a mistake, I don't have to take responsibility for the mistake mm -hmm. or the harm that mm -hmm. I've imposed on somebody within my community, which mm -hmm. is erroneous. But I think that's how it's been used in different spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I'm so particular about making sure that mm -hmm. we properly define what it is. Mm -hmm to be in a safe space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the and I think the brave part is what allows us to sh let people know that hey, it's okay to be vulnerable. Hey, mm -hmm. yes, it's okay to make mistakes, but what's important is how you respond after you make the mistake. That's what makes you brave is being vulnerable and being able to acknowledge mm -hmm. that the mistake has been made. And you've imposed the harm. Both yeah. students and educators. I think that yeah. that's yeah. really important. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> For sure. But that's always something that I like to throw out there. Now, in saying that, right, a lot of this work that we do involves awareness. Mm -hmm. And this awareness is something that even to this day, we're still trying to develop within ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one day I was just talking with my wife and I had mentioned the fact that in order for us to really do anti-bias, anti-racist work, in order for us to be 
that inclusive classroom educator, there has to be this consistent awareness of three P's. Mm-hmm. Privilege, positionality, mm-hmm. power. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you're able to maintain those three things, you're always going to be doing this work in earnest. Mm-hmm. It's not going to come off as being performative or disingenuous. Mm-hmm. That's just my thought about it. But mm-hmm. I'm interested in hearing from you all how you feel those three P's influence the work that we do in creating inclusive spaces in the classroom. So anybody can can jump in. Yeah, it's a deep question, so we got to give it some thought. I don't, you know, I don't mind jumping in. You know, it's like double. Yeah. I, I was waiting. Like, well, you know, I'll just right. sit back. <laughs> <laughs> Go, Craig. Well, Go for it, man. <laughs> So you know, I got I got some I got some age on me. Uh, just just so that y'all know, you know, this 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 is not you know baby skin anymore. But you know, it's <laughs> it is. Um, I, I say that to say this: um, twenty years in education at this juncture, um, I have had the privilege of being in particular spaces where I've been able to um, help shape. The context of a classroom to the uh, to how the school actually runs and functions every day. I've been able to hire educators from all over the world to serve young people at whatever unit uh, at whatever campus I've been at. Mm-hmm. I do recognize every day that my American citizenship status, you know, my being six foot three, me being a male. Um, you know, me actually being in a middle class, you know, environment or income, all ha- all are privileges that I walk in the door with without even opening my mouth. Mm-hmm. And it is, I have to have that awareness because I do realize that when I walk into those spaces, some people don't carry that. And so the question really for me always is, is how do I do my part? so that it's less of me and more of the people who need the service, who need the space. How do I create the platform so other people and their their persona, all that they bring to the table has a space where they can talk and share and explore. They can lead and walk, you know, how do I do that? And I don't take any of that for granted. Mm-hmm. But people have to recognize that the even the small things that they take for granted Mm-hmm. You have the ability to lay your head on a pillow tonight. Mm-hmm. You can put cover over yourself. You can mm-hmm. actually decide with $20, I want to go to McDonald's or I want to go to X and get me a meal. Some people don't have that. They don't mm-hmm. have the ability to make those kinds of choices mm-hmm. today. Some of us, like I'm sitting on my deck. I am not necessarily concerned about my safety mm-hmm. and welfare, but there are people in other parts of mm-hmm. the world where this is a danger to them to be outside. Mm-hmm. How do you actually raise that level of awareness and how do you actually move, create a space where people have that consciousness and then they are doing the very intentional work to ensure mm-hmm. different people are, are, are in power or in position to be able to hear their voices, elevate their consciousness and create a greater awareness that mm-hmm. they can and bring other people along. So mm-hmm. I do recognize that. And there's some stuff I still don't know yet. I'm still trying to figure out because <laughs> it requires me to be in different spaces where people are constantly challenging me. Like, Craig, you realize 
that X. Wow, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. You know, I only know my lived experience and experience mm-hmm. sharing with me from others. Yes. And so just being aware of that um, can do a lot. And raising that in conversation mm-hmm. lets people know that you too are keenly aware. Yeah. For me, a turning point was um, meeting uh, Kimberly Crenshaw at a POCC conference and, and learning about uh, intersectionality. I think that helped me a lot. I had read Paulo Freire, and Paulo Freire discusses a lot uh, the dynamic about being an oppressed oppressor, which is, I think, something, a dynamic that all of us experience, you know? But I think learning for Kimberly Crenshaw helped me put all those ideas in a very, very um, practical way. Like, I, I can unpack my privilege. I'm a racialized um Latina, I don't like to use that term anymore. I'm a racialized immigrant. I, I am a woman, but I'm also cisgender, heterosexual, and I'm also light-skinned Latina. So I am oppressed, but I can also be have the potential to be the oppressor. And, and as I'm packing that without defensiveness and from a place of vulnerability, I think it's something that we should do in front of our students too. Um, I have worked in independent schools for the last 14 years. And there's a lot of privilege in the kids that I that I've taught. And um, unpacking the privilege is very, very uncomfortable. So I usually start myself. And I thank all the teachers that I have had along the road that made me uh, feel safe, <laughs> redundantly about opening up myself and acknowledging my privileges and also seeing the ways that I'm oppressed uh, in a clear way. But I, I always start my webinars and, and the hardest conversation in my classroom happened from, with me opening up. This is me. These are my privileges. You know, I, I experience all these things that are hard every day, but I also don't experience that. And I cannot speak for a person that have that lived experience because my lived experience is unique. And what I can do for that other person that experiencing that is listen, listening with an open mind and an open heart. I think Craig talk about souls. I do believe that too. I believe in community and that when you're vulnerable, uh, I think your students have that chance to open up to. Yeah, I am a white female, so I have a lot of privileges. And I think that it's super, super important for um, white people, especially Mm -hmm. like, let's just keep it real right now (laughs) to acknowledge your privilege, but not just acknowledge it that you need to continuously be divesting from white supremacy culture and understanding how that has influenced the choices that you've made previously in your life and how it will also continue to affect the choices that you make and the choices that you have because as it was mentioned before that not everybody has the same choices offered to them based Mm -hmm. on different privileges and that it takes more than just acknowledging it. You have Mm -hmm. to continue to invest in that work and move away from white supremacy culture that Mm -hmm. has been so deeply rooted and embedded in our society. Mm -hmm. And I think that our positionality shapes the reality of our experiences. And Mm -hmm. so it allows for us to 
well, for me in particular, to acknowledge how my distinct identities mm -hmm. influence how I approach the classroom mm -hmm. and how I can take the opportunity to learn about other identities, mm -hmm. create these spaces, be in spaces where my voice is not the voice that's being heard. Mm -hmm. um, that uplifting other voices and other marginalized communities and groups is so super important and that that's a an important part of using your privilege purposefully. Mm -hmm. And all these things are important for us to recognize. And mm -hmm. what I love about this group is the fact that you are coming in with different skill sets, different sets of expertise, all within this umbrella of an issue that we're talking about. So I want to switch things up and really hone in on the work that you all do specifically within your specific roles um, mm -hmm. in the school. Um, and I'm going to switch up the view because I want I want to refresh it a little bit. There we go. <laughs> so, yeah, I just got to freshen it up a little bit. So I'm interested in learning about how each of you within your respective roles show students that they belong in the classroom or in Craig's case, school, since he's a school leader. So Craig is a school leader. Uh, Francoise is a language teacher. Destiny, you taught English for many years at the middle of high school level. I was a math teacher. So we're all coming in teaching different areas and coming in with different roles. So what's going to happen is each of you are going to get your your question, and I'm going to have you all just share how you all do it within your roles. So mm -hmm. I'm going to start with Destiny. And I know with you, Destiny, you do a lot of work with trying to bring in LGBTQ plus inclusive education, mm -hmm. particularly in the history realm. Mm -hmm. But I want to take it a step further and find out from you, how do you how can you get teachers and school leaders to create queer affirming learning spaces for students? Um, so <laughs> I got to get my notes out because um, there are just so many ways that we can do this. Mm -hmm. I think that often when we're asked that question or we're thinking about that question as educators, that it can be a little overwhelming because you're like, well, maybe that's not part of your identity. You don't know how um, to create a space like that. And so my advice for teachers in creating these queer affirming spaces for their students and also just want to add in there also the queer staff that exists there, too, um, because, you know, as a queer educator myself, that my school needed to be a safe environment for me and it needed to be a safe environment for my students. So um, one really big way that we can do that is to provide representation whether that's in your curriculum, your school events, um, your physical look of your classroom, whether you have like the intersectionality flag or, um, you know, just a little rainbow or something that signifies that you are supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. And if you feel a little overwhelmed about incorporating it into your curriculum, that um, you could start small. Maybe it's just an example, like a word problem. Um, where there's a non-binary person or the singular they is being used. Um, 
And the second thing that I recommend to teachers is to address your bullying and harassment that I think that when we hear that, sometimes we're like, oh, we don't have a bullying problem or like, you know, and not at our school. This this is a safe zone and that we're doing our students such a disservice because we're not actively taking a role in creating that environment. And that sometimes we can feel really nervous about approaching these situations, but we do more harm by not approaching Mm -hmm. the situations because our students see that they see our reaction. They see that we're not saying anything. So Mm -hmm. not only are you, you're losing that connection that you have with that student, but then you're setting a precedent Mm -hmm. for how you handle uncomfortable situations that may not affect you directly. Um, and that's, you know, the opposite of what we want to do when we are trying to create this queer spaces, um, or excuse me, queer affirming spaces for our students and staff. And I think that's um, so important because one thing that I've come to realize is this is something that's always, uh, I mean, race is always touchy, but when we talk about gender and sexuality, that's, that's just as touchy because, for one, I feel like a lot of people get intimidated by just yeah. the language and the nuances mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. right? And even mm-hmm. for myself, for me to be able to say now that, you know, I'm a cisgendered, heterosexual, black male, mm-hmm. I couldn't say that two years ago. I had to mm-hmm. learn that <laughs> from talking to different people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think a lot of us are so afraid to make a mistake that we don't even act like you were mm-hmm. mentioning. We just decide to go into a state of inaction in order to avoid making the mistake. But when we do that, we're doing our students a disservice. Mm-hmm. And then that goes back to what we said about being brave. So I just wanted to just add that. Yeah. And I, I'll add that, um, you know, learning and listening is great. And I think that it's super important for us to learn more about identities that are outside of our own. But as you said, that sometimes people become so just wrapped up in wanting to learn the next thing so that they don't make mistakes that subsequently they're doing nothing. (laughs) Um, So, you know, learning and listening is great, but it won't lead to liberation. You have to take Mm -hmm. action. Um, and so I think that that's a really like big and important distinction while you are learning and it is important that you also have to take action and you also have to like play an active role in that. Yes, for sure. So, so we're going to shift from LGBTQ plus inclusive education to now languages <laughs> and for people that have been following my podcast for the past couple of years. I've done a whole lot of episodes focused on language mm-hmm. um, in the classroom. And um, Francoise has been on my podcast and we've had some great conversations about this mm-hmm. very issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who don't know, um, Francoise has taught ESL mm-hmm. And Spanish um, in a different school setting she's been in. So she has a lot of experience when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, Francoise, my question to you is, how can world language teachers, so whether you are teaching French, whether you're teaching Spanish, whether you're teaching Mandarin, whatever language you're you're teaching, 
how can they cultivate inclusive classroom environments that are honoring the intersectional identities of their students? What would that look like in that setting? Wow, this is a charged question because the answer is um, a whole book that I intend to write one day. <laughs> so I would say um, it's not that different from any other classroom uh, because a word language classroom should be a uh, classroom where language is taught as um, a vehicle, as content. I believe languages are... I don't believe, I'm sure, languages are part of people's identities. Like, I'm racialized because I speak Spanish in the United States. So your language is your identity. Um, so um, I think language languages should be humanized and take it out of that context of a grammar-based approach or a mechanical approach to teaching languages. And when you bring people in the mix... It's when you can actually uh, participate of a praxis, praxis as described by Paulo Freire as theory, reflection and action upon the world in order to change it. When you acknowledge that languages are people's identities, it's not hard to bring that sort of inclusion and belonging to your classroom. First of all, those of us that are teaching languages that were used as tool of oppression by um, colonizers, we need to acknowledge that this is where the language is coming from. Second of all, we need to acknowledge that language, languages are spoken by diasporas. So the first thing that we need to do in our classrooms is uh, acknowledge that there are so many different realities. There are so many different um, experiences. There are so many different cultures within a diaspora that speaks a language, that it's very important to present the diaspora as a diaspora and not, not as a monolith in your classroom. Mm -hmm. And when you have the diaspora, when you acknowledge that a language was used to oppress other people, uh, when you know that language is part of people's identity, then your lens, it's refined and you have the right lens to create resources and design your curriculum and bring uh, mirrors, windows and sliding doors for your students. Um, it's very important for students, for example, in my Spanish class, to acknowledge that there are people that look like them, sound like them, uh, and maybe have similar experience that are speaking the language too. For example, one of the jobs uh, that I put on myself uh, in this latest years in my Spanish class was for my students to see la uh, Spanish not as a foreign language, but as a language that is spoken for fo by 41 million people in the United States. So that uh, foreign word, it creates otherness. Uh, another thing that is really important is that a language classroom, especially those languages like Spanish that are binary, uh, should be a place of openness in the sense that we need to learn the ways and how to make the language inclusive, especially for non-binary students. Um, and for and think about the students that are the most um, marginalized because of their identity and show those beautiful mirrors for them in our curriculum and everywhere, as um, Destiny said, it, our classroom needs to be... Um, our bulletin boards, our classroom, everything needs to ref uh, reflect that sort of belonging and welcoming. 
So word language is the perfect place to create uh, that sense of belonging, that inclusion. And it's the teacher's choice to refine their lens and see the ways in which they can be inclusive or not. Uh, Dr. Jose Medina, one of my favorites, always says, you can teach languages either to oppress or to liberate. And I would encourage I would encourage every word language teacher here to see the ways to refine their lens with background knowledge, uh, to acknowledge the positionality of the language. For example, Spanish is a subordinate language in the United States, but it's not a foreign language. There are 41 million people speaking Spanish in the United States. When we know that positionality, when we acknowledge that the, the speakers are a diaspora, that unfortunately indigenous languages disappear because of the imposition of Spanish, then we have the right lens and uh, what to include in our curriculum, how to design our resources uh, to make, him, make them more welcoming for our whole class. Now, I actually have a question about romance languages, uh, mm -hmm. particularly French and mm -hmm. Spanish, because mm -hmm. as you already know, there are a lot of countries that yeah. speak different dialects of each of those languages. Yeah. And, and we'll just use um, Spanish as, a, as an example. So I've interviewed mm -hmm. Spanish-speaking educators, whether they mm -hmm. come from uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, mm -hmm. um, Chile, <laughs> uh, Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I've always been fascinated by just the difference in certain terminologies mm -hmm. across the different dialects mm -hmm. and how one dialect is more oppressed than the other within the classroom. Yes. So if you were to have, let's say, um, a Chilean, mm -hmm. um, a, a Chicano, a Cuban, or any other Spanish speaker in the classroom, mm -hmm. and they're all in the same thing, mm -hmm. Spaniard, right? Mm -hmm. What I've learned is usually the Spaniard, and in some cases... You know, Mexican, the, the way that this Spanish is, is centered more than all the other dialects, mm -hmm. which makes me wonder, why is even that the case? And how come we're not humanizing all the different dialects and being inclusive in that regard? I, I think that um, it's colonization. The problem is colonization, because if you see the languages that are more demonized, is the languages, and I'm telling you because my geolect, um, this is how I call my uh, dialects because they depending on the geographical area, right? My yes. geolect, it's very much uh, one of the most demonized because we drift so far away from what Castilian Spanish is. And I want to bring a little bit of history here. Castilian was not the language talk at the peninsula uh, widely spoken before uh, the colonization of Al-Andalus. The Spanish peninsula was Al-Andalus, which was um, uh, for 700 years, a, I wouldn't say Muslim, but it was ruled by people from North Africa. And uh, the religious were uh, existing in, in some sort of harmony and uh, Mossadab and other languages. There was 
a large diversity of language. So in order to colonize and make Spain, Spain and, and a unified Christian Catholic power, uh, Castilian was imposed. So when these Castilians came and colonized all these lands where Spanish is spoken, they brought the same ideology. We need to make Spanish the most powerful, um, Castilian, the most powerful um, sort of communication so we can obliterate the other um, choices. So our geolects, the most they drift away from Castilian is the resistance of our ancestors. Like, um, just to give you an example, um, Chilean has a lot of indigenous words, either Quechua, Mapuche, you know. Uh, my first word as a baby was the word guagua, that in Quechua means baby. Just to tell you how strong this is. So I feel very passionate about this. So what happens and why we have this uh, hierarchy when it comes to languages is a result of colonization. Uh, there's this illusion of standard language that the Real Academia de la Lengua uh, installed. And the most you are close to that illusion of a standard, because standard doesn't exist, it shouldn't, um, the more acceptance you have. The more you speak like your dialect, the farther you, uh, you get away from Castilian, the more demonized you are. And that's why a lot of Caribbean countries that speak Spanish are on the same level as Chilean dialect. Uh, they get looked down on, and they have a lot of words from Yoruba. And the pronunciation has a lot of that uh, uh, rhythm that comes from their ancestors, too. So you see, all this demonization has to do with uh, colonization. It has to do with the adoration by the, uh, of the colonizers, the Castilians. Uh, and that's why it gets on my nerves when my people that were oppressed by the Spaniards are defending the language of the colonizer. You know, it, um, it can be a long talk, but in, in, in a nutshell, this is what it is. Yeah. Yes, it is deep. It's super, super deep. Um, so the last part that we want to talk about is, is school leadership. Um, and of course, we have principals, we have administrators who have a critical role in ensuring that faculty members, staff members, and even students are in a space where they feel like they can be themselves. So Craig, I'm coming to you, brother. I'm interested in knowing, just based on your experience as a school leader, what role should principals and, and administrators play in ensuring that our schools are being inclusive and, and they're being led in a way such that our students aren't leaving their any parts of their identities at the door. So of course I get, you know, a tough question coming after Destiny and Francois. Uh, I because I just want to talk about what Francois was talking about. Cause I was like, oh yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Go ahead, brother. Because that's not the question. You got this question on the screen. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do this thing. Uh what I what I, there's several things that I'm thinking about, um, but one of the things that settled in my spirit uh, comes from Dr. Brene Brown that talks about uh, trust is built in the small moments. Um, I understand that I'm an architect of the atmosphere that young people walk in every day, uh, whether or not I am the chief or I'm the for us. Are we good? Okay, there we go. All right, technical difficulties, but that's all right. I'm still alive in color. Hey, people. <laughs> 
like, what's the worldly thing? That's a whole thing. All right, back to back to this. I recognize that um, our young people and families, they the first thing you want to do is be able to uh, say, hey, how are you? And call them by their name. Mm-hmm. You recognize in like infinitely when a young person feels like, you know who, you know my name. You may not know all about me, but you know my name and you call me by my name. That is a gift that keeps on giving. Then when they walk into the space environmentally from the scent and aromatherapy. So we are, we you know, we've got to the place where we do a little lavender, we do a little lemongrass, we do a little vanilla in the atmosphere because we want to, uh, we want you to feel like this is home because you're going to be here for nine or 10 hours or more, depending on whether or not you do sports or clubs or, or other things. You're home and you're a home away from home. But environmentally, in, if you walk into our campus now, there are flags that are in, in our library, in our atrium. So when you walk in, flags of different cultures are represented. We still have work to do. I don't want people to feel like, you know, we're United Nations. We're close, but we're <laughs> there yet, right? But when you, uh, even today, there was a, a someone from a summer program who walked in and was like, oh my God, I came in and I saw my flag of Guiana here. Oh, it feels like home. I'm like, yes, just for you. I didn't know that this person who was going to serve in our school community. So we prepare the environment for the world. We are not going to sit here and limit our ability to create inclusive and welcoming spaces to just those people who are there all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm preparing all the time for global citizens Mm -hmm. of the world who are going to take the world by storm. Mm -hmm. There is something, uh, there's a quote by Ralph Ellison that says, if you can show me how I can cling to that, that is real to me. Mm-hmm. While teaching me a way into the large society, then the only then and only then will I drop my defenses and hostility, and mm-hmm. I will sing your praises and help you to make the desert bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And that's Ralph Ooh. Ellison. Mm-hmm. So that thing there is deep. Mm-hmm. But I when I take it, when I take and unpack that, right? I take and unpack that. Um, what I think about is I need you to see yourself in different parts of the experience without even opening your mouth. So that could be the flags. That could be what is it that we have as environmental print? Do you see queer, you know, um, and LGBTQIA members on the walls, on posters? Mm -hmm. Do you also see and experience different cuisines in the meals we serve? And we have our farm to table in the my school community, a very great privilege that we have. So we have the ability to also ensure you are experiencing your cuisines that remind you of home, grandma, you know, mm-hmm. abuela, you know, and that too is important. Then we look at what books are in the in the library. So I know, you know, one of the questions is about, you know, books, mm-hmm. but what books am I going to find? And are they representative of a variety of cultures? These happen to be uh, written by black women. Mm-hmm. I can talk about the fact that there's incredible Black women who've written books for children. So mm-hmm. this is actually for you, and it was done by people who carry a heritage and lineage similar to yours. How proud our young people, especially our girls, feel to know that they, too, have the ability to change the world by writing and rebelling against white supremacy, right? One of the things that um, I sh- I- I'm to continuing to grow in, I am not an expert, and I'm sure that people are 
arguably say that I, I you know I may have a little work to do is what experiences do we create around uh, uh, throughout the year to ensure that we're cel- we're creating experiences where the people are absolutely powerful and welcome and they get to come in and present and share about who they are and that you do this in a way that is liberating because i know destiny talked about how liberating it is right to be able to walk into a space and know it was especially designed for you well every classroom space should be especially designed for every soul because the books that are incredibly diverse kids are writing and creating and we want to put them on a pedestal so that they can see that they too are shining they too are contributing to the greater world and you have to, as a leader, create the atmosphere where you empower teachers in order to use all the tools they can, access all the, all the tools that you can, and bring people in so that they can actually lean in. And guess what? Applaud. Like, I am so glad to see that you are rocking in this work that is anti-racist, that may be, you know, a host of things. And if I happen to also have people who represent the cultures and the communities of the young people we serve and they fill the space that too is amazing but i don't think that that's always the best thing to do because you need to have people who are going to push the boundaries mm-hmm. i need someone like francois and i also need destiny to come to my campus and serve and lead in my campus because they're going to push me too like craig you thought you had it but we got <laughs> we got stuck on like you done got comfortable you think oh okay mm-hmm. we got you know we got some people who look like us from teaching mm-hmm. I, we got more for you to do because this is about making sure they're great for the world. This is mm-hmm. not just about the zip code. And so when you do that, that is one of the best love offerings we can mm-hmm. actually extend to young people, the staff that serves them, the parents that are, are the first teachers of the young people we serve, and the community partners who are there to serve at the will of the school community. Yes. Mm. Are you looking for a Spanish teacher? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Look, I'm in between jobs. I just (laughs) left my job for 12 years and I'm looking for a new community. So, okay, okay. we should (laughs) talk. Let me go. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, um, yeah, yeah, y'all definitely need to talk later. Now, now, Craig, since you done called me out, I will give you the chance to respond to what Francoise was talking about earlier. So I'm going to give you the floor, brother, since you done called me out, man. <laughs> what did I call you out about? <laughs> Come on, bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I really don't know. What did I call you out about? I was I was flowing, so I, you know, I don't know. What, what oh, so yeah. Mean? So before I, before I ask you the question about what principals should do to create inclusive spaces, you said that you wanted to respond to what uh, Francoise was talking oh. about with languages. You had something. Oh, I think that I, I was just very excited because see, in uh, for uh, many Black Americans, we also talk about you know Black English and being able to speak in you know proper English, and not and so having to leave behind Ebonics or Pig Latin or you know, what is considered to be um, reductive in regards to what is uh, just the English norm. And so some of what we find is 
anytime anything is not part of the queen's english it is considered to be lower class and less than and so we have to raise that who you are and what you bring to the table your ability to communicate in whatever ways you can are absolutely honorable it is our job to wrap our arms around you so that we can continue to build connections across the classroom across the school across the community but what we don't do we're like oh no you got to speak in this way like why do i why do i yes Yes, thank you. Come on now. Can I say something to that? Go for yes. it. Go for it. In in the word of, uh, in the word of linguistics, we use the word repertoire, and our students bring a repertoire to our classroom. And uh, African American vernacular, it's part of the repertoire, and it should be honored. It should be celebrated, and. What do we do as teachers? It's adding more to the repertoire, but not taking away. Because mm. that's oppression. Every time you want to take away, because language is identity. Every time a teacher wants to take away something that belongs to the kid's repertoire, that's killing part of their identity. Mm. Yes, Absolutely. yes, <laughs> for sure. So we're at the hour, so I want to start to wind things down. So I have one closing question and then a very quick lightning round. So the question I have for everybody is focused on growth, right? Because one thing that we know about creating these inclusive spaces is that it requires Mm -hmm. us to to continue to grow in our learning um, as we speak. So I want to know from each of you, how are you continuing to grow in your practice and address the blind spots that you have your understanding as it pertains to diversity, equity, inclusion. Cause we, we hear those three terms a lot and there's still so much that each of us have to learn with regard to, to that realm. So um, I'll, I'll do this. I'll go counterclockwise and have destiny go ahead and then we'll work our way back up mm-hmm. to me. So go ahead, destiny. Okay, well, so um, I think that one big thing that I'm trying to do within my own practice is allowing myself to be wrong, Mm -hmm. that recognizing where I have caused harm and listening to others' experiences. And I think that, like, it may feel instinctual, like, oh, I didn't do that, but, like, that I'm sorry. That comes first, the apology, acknowledgement that, like, you know, I was wrong. Or um, even just allowing myself the space to reflect on other people's experiences as they share them with me and to be able to learn from those experiences and apply what I learn. Um, Because as I mentioned earlier, that like while learning and listening is important, that it's also important that you take action based on what you learn from other people's experiences and what they share with you. Um, and that like just allowing yourself to be in this space where you don't know it all and that, you know, like when it comes especially to like LGBTQ plus inclusion, equity work, um, that no one has all the answers and that this work is continuous. It's there is no destination that we're just on this journey together, hopefully learning from one another and um, you know, everybody's just doing the best that they can. And that that takes humility and the ability to 
stop and say I was wrong and kind of learn to reduce harm in that way. Mm-hmm. Hey, Craig. Think, yeah. <laughs> oh, like, uh, is it me now? Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, Dr. Uh, Darnisa Amanti Jackson says, you know, you can't have an equity heart and a pre-diversity mindset. What I take that to mean for me is, is these spaces here where I'm learning like, whoa, okay, I hadn't even thought about this, you know, and whether or not it is uh, the, you know, the power of language and literacy, or I think about, you know, what as a cisgender gay man, where, you know, what levels of privilege do I hone and what levels of positionality do I carry when I, you know, juxtapose that to my trans, you know, uh, you know, counterparts, right? And so when I think about my growth journey, it is putting myself in new spaces with different people who are going to push my thinking, mm-hmm. who are going to constantly challenge me to say, Craig, you think you're good, but you could be greater. You could have greater impact because you need to understand these nuggets, these tools, mm-hmm. these gems. Like, I need you to listen to me and really listen to me because you need to carry this story or this anecdote or this part of me or this part of this young person to when you are standing in front of the state house. Like, because someone needs to hear their story. And if they can't say it, you can because you're positioned to, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that goes back to the positionality. So for me, there's several things. Humble myself all the time. I am not, you know, I am still, I, I, I learned that I'm learning that I know less than I thought that I knew because there are constantly people who are pulling back the layers and like showing me, yeah, you've been taught this, but we need to break that down and unpack that for you um, and understand how some things have been great that you've learned, but there are some things you might have said and done that are harmful. So I'm, 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 I'm unpacking that work because if I really am being a human being and a loving, kind, you know, you know, chocolate giant that I, I want to be, then I'm going to keep doing this work because there are going to be some young people who will need me in these solid moments. And I need to be in places that are going to push me. So that's all I'm going to keep growing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so inspiring. <laughs> um, I think our, um, you know, uh, our little uh, weakness lies where our privilege, privilege lies. So the areas of my identity were the most privileged is where I lack, I completely like the knowledge about people that are not privileged in that way, that are marginalized. So um, I think I think the key here is to stay humble, as Craig said, and to stay open to learning and 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 to realize that uh, and never take it personally. We were conditioned and socialized into these mindsets, and I'm gonna blame it in colonization again. <laughs> these mindsets that the colonizer put out there and these um, ontological ideas, these epistemologies, they are so strong. Um, one poet said, uh, white supremacy is the water. We are immersed in this ocean. So of course we are going to act, uh, we're going to have attitudes no matter our identity that, uh, you know, support and elevate white supremacy culture, we will. And 
that acknowledgement, uh, that acknowledgement humbles me. It's like, I know I'm going to screw up. I know I'm going to make a mistake. How can I be better? What are, what are the parts of me that, what is the privilege that it's not letting me see other people's experiences? And I need to go and listen and, and listen hard and listen out of a place of humbleness and not defensiveness. Because that personal experience is, is valid and it's more important than my ego, you know? So what I do, it's, um, I, I, I read a lot. Um, the indigenous people history of the United States has been one book that I would recommend everybody to read. Mm -hmm. because it's so eye-opening. Uh, and there are so many other, uh, you know, um, resources out there. But I think, as Craig mentioned, our most important treasure here is people. We need to um, have relationships with people that are going to take us out of our comfort zone, but also that are not our immediate circle where we feel sheltered. Mm -hmm. Yes. That, that thing that's a challenge in the United States. Because in the United States, there are these, niche, these niches, you know, where people operate. And they there's a lot of people that say, oh, I have a Latino friend over there. They are not friends. They are acquaintances. Mm. So that's a person that's going to think they love my culture. And they are going to tell me, do you speak Mexican? Uh, you know, well, I've, been <laughs> I've been told that. Uh, so that's what I'm saying. I'm talking about true bonding and true relationship that goes um, both ways. That it's a it's an honest relationship where we can both learn from each other. So that sort of community, the brave space that we were talking about, it's what helped us grow. Amen to that. And <laughs> um, I'll be remiss if we didn't make mention of one aspect of just this whole dominant culture narrative and it's this idea of being able-bodied right mm -hmm. so i know mm -hmm. like in our conversation we didn't talk a whole lot about mm -hmm. you know ableism and the importance of disability justice so yes. when we think about special education when we think about students who who have mm -hmm. ieps who have 504 mm -hmm. plans mm -hmm how they're marginalized yes. in their own regard within classroom communities and mm -hmm. greater school community. Um, that's something that tends to get overlooked in conversations regarding yes. inclusive classrooms. So I just wanted to make sure that um, before we, we get off the live, we highlight that because it's something that requires more attention. Mm -hmm. And it's an area that I personally am growing more in, in terms of just learning more about ableism and and how what that looks like, the history of it. Because mm -hmm. there are a lot of, because it, it manifests itself in so many ways that we're not even aware of. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. still growing in that regard. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I think that so, is the area where I need more, I need to grow the most. Mm. Uh, that's the area that I need to grow the most. The, yes. the indigenous people's history of the United States, that book, like it actually, there's a series. So there's like a queer history of the United yes. States. There's a disabled history of the United States. Wow. Um, and so 
like that's a really great series to yes. kind of start learning with. Yes, it is. Yes. Um, highly recommended books for sure. Um, so I did say we're going to do a quick lightning round before we get out of here. So <laughs> I got a quick one here. And it's fun. This is a fun question. So we all were in the classroom one time or still in the classroom. When you're walking into the classroom, what song is playing when you enter the classroom? What's your walk-in song? Dynamite BTS. That's my song. Right. At least this year, when I was going through pandemia, all their songs, but especially that one, I would walk to school lighting up like dynamite. <laughs> I, it felt <laughs> like, oh, I'm doing this thing again, but I'm going to try my best because I'm dynamite. I'm shining in go. the stars tonight, you know? <laughs> um, I am torn between Be Alive by Beyonce and Toast oh. by Coffee. So those are the two that I'm like, right now, I would be rocking. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's tough to choose. I think maybe uh, Beyonce's new yeah. song, Break My Soul. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, fun. like, I'm just like, they can't break my soul. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I love that song. That's a song yes. that was created for teachers. It was. <laughs> she knew. She knew. Yes. She, knows. she knows. We needed that after yes. this year. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, shameless, shameless plug. Make sure y'all read my article about that very song on Education Post right now. Go to the website, edpost.com. It's the feature. Y'all go check it out. Let me know how you feel. All right, y'all. Man, this has been a great um, panel discussion. Um, Francoise, Craig, Destiny, thank y'all so much for taking time to, to chat with me. Love y'all. Um, and, and, oh yeah, this is the most important part because guess what? People need to know how they can connect with you because some of y'all need to be in schools talking to these teachers about how they can be inclusive in their practice. So I want to give y'all an opportunity to just share with listeners how they can connect with you on social media. And if you have any websites, share those as well. They'll also be in the episode notes for people to refer to, but I want to let y'all um, go ahead and do that. So, um, Francoise, you can go ahead and start off. Okay. I have a really cheesy username, but it's the brand has grown, so I cannot change it at this point. And <laughs> in Instagram, where I'm the most active, I'm the woke Spanish teacher. And um, in Twitter, I'm TWS teacher. So um, if anybody wants to work with me, my resume, because I'm looking for a new community, it's also on my link tree in the bio in my Instagram. So you can find all my uh, accolades there and also my personal email. And if you want to work with me, you can reach me out over there. Thank you. Gracias. All right. <laughs> all right Nada. Go ahead, Craig. Uh, let's see. Craig C. Martin, uh, 12 at Twitter. Uh, but I'm like, yeah, I have a link tree as well. So if you do link tree, then Craig C. Martin, you'll get all kinds of stuff. And that's how you find me. Oh, man, let me help you out, man. Y'all can go to CraigMartinLeads.com as well. Check the man oh, yes. out. He got services too. 
He being mm-hmm. humble right now. Let me come on, mm-hmm. man. I'm gonna help you out. Yeah, I was creeping on your website before this. It looks awesome. <laughs> I was also stalking your website. <laughs> I'm like, you need oh, to Craig. Wow. Oh wow. That's too kind. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, of course, Destiny, let us know. Um, well, so I'm Discover Ed with Destiny um, over on Instagram and Twitter, if you're into that, too. Um, I also have a website, discoveredwithdestiny.com. You can reach out to me and contact me there if you'd like for me to come to your school, speak with your staff about inclusive practices for LGBTQ plus students, Um and I also have a podcast. So I just recently launched a podcast. It's called Closeted History, LGBTQ plus stories of the past, where we talk about all the queer history you never knew. Nice. Um, so I would love if you checked out the podcast. Um, I also have a Instagram for the podcast as well. So Closeted History over on IG. And yeah, that's me. Yes. And y'all need to follow all their accounts. And subscribe to the Closeted History podcast, including this one as well. All right. So um, once again, thank y'all for for joining me, and you know, I look forward to continuing this conversation with y'all. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was thank a pleasure you. to Such be with all of you. Yes. And on behalf of my three phenomenal panelists, this is a wrap, y'all. We're wrapping up another episode of my day talk for educators live. And this was a special one. So um, as always, I wish you all a good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.